Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we learn about space mining with Alex Gilbert, a fellow at the Payne Institute for Public Policy at the Colorado School of Mines. Alex will help us understand the fundamentals of space mining, including key questions like what resources are people interested in mining? What technologies will be needed to extract those resources? How will ownership of the resources be governed? And what environmental risks might we encounter, or perhaps create, in space? The answers to all of these questions are truly fascinating, so I hope you'll stay with us. All right, Alex Gilbert from the Payne Institute, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you, Daniel. So Alex, we are going to talk today about space mining, and as I was telling you before we started recording, I'm really excited because this is so far from anything that I know even the remotest amount about. I'm really excited to to learn about this. But I want to ask you the first question that we ask all of our guests, which is, how did you get started thinking about and, and becoming interested in environmental topics in the first place? Yeah, thanks. I'm also really excited. I think this will be a fun conversation. Uh, So I'm originally from Colorado, and when I was growing up, I used to do a lot of backpacking, a lot of outdoors uh, recreation, and particularly one of my favorite things then relevant for this conversation is I did a lot of stargazing, and so Mm. um, always had that outdoor aesthetic, and then when I got to undergrad, um, I took a geography class, and the professor started the geography class uh, with a poem, uh, something there is that doesn't love a wall, and I thought it was a really interesting way to think about geography. And then I started looking more and more into um, the environment as a career field and just realized that it was an interdisciplinary field. And I really liked uh, using interdisciplinary approaches to try and identify and solve those problems. And so from there, it just kind of uh, snowballed into energy issues, climate issues, and then uh, now increasingly space issues. Yeah, fantastic. So let's let's start talking about those space issues. Um, so the first question that I wanted to just start us off with was if you can help us understand what are the resources that people might be interested in mining in space. So, you know, what are the types of things that people might be looking for? And also, you know, this is a question born out of ignorance, but how do how do we on Earth even know that a given object in space, whether it's a, a moon or an asteroid or something else, would even have resources that we would be interested in mining? Yeah, so that's a great way to start, really. What is there? How do we know? And why do we want to get it? Um, yeah. So maybe just to kind of start, I'll start by uh, rebutting an existing preconception about space mining. Uh, there are these stories that consistently come out saying that the first uh, trillionaire on Earth is going to be a space miner, or that uh, you look at some of these asteroids and they're worth however many quadrillion of dollars in terms of the resources available. Uh, When we are looking at space mining, it's a very different approach to um, kind of that focus on uh, the economic riches, because a lot of that analysis is uh, very superficial. When you really start looking at space resources today and for the next 50 years, we're only talking about a handful of resources on certain asteroids, uh, the moon, and potentially Mars. And for the most part, when we're talking about the resources, we're very unlikely to be bringing much of these resources back to Earth. Uh, the economics are just too challenging. Um, and so when people are talking about asteroid mining in particular, they often talk about platinum or rare earths or other types of metals that have very high values. Um, there's work going on uh, this question right now to understand the economics of returning those to Earth, but it seems like it's going to be highly uh, uncompetitive with traditional Earth resources. Uh, just the launch cost and then going back down into the 
atmosphere, you end up getting so many different costs along the way that even if you can get something that is very high value on a mass basis, it's unlikely to be competitive in Earth markets. So why do we care about space resources? Really, we care about space resources because it enhances our ability to do things in space. Uh, the primary one that we are focused on right now, and which will likely be the first major space resource produced, is water. Uh, water is great for a number of reasons. You can drink it, you can split it in uh, to oxygen, hydrogen, and use that oxygen to breathe. But really, the big thing that is useful about water in space is that we can use it to make propellant. We can refuel satellites and spaceships with water that we have found and then processed in space. And because uh, the space environment has abundant solar power, it's relatively straightforward for us to take water and split it into hydrogen and oxygen, which we can then burn in a uh, rocket engine. Mm -hmm. And so once we have this ability to produce propellant, it makes it much easier and cheaper to access uh, areas that are farther away. Uh, most activities right now are just low Earth orbit. We can do more things in geosynchronous Earth orbit. We can do more things in the cislunar space. We can also do more interplanetary missions. And particularly if you're looking at some sort of crewed mission to Mars in the future, uh, having refueling in space once you get out of Earth's gravity well is going to probably be an enabling technology. It's going to be really hard for you to launch all the mass that you need on one rocket. Um, so really, if we're trying to think about these resources, there's three kind of big areas. There's the asteroids, which we are uh, learning a lot more about. We're probably going to be looking in the near term at what are called near-Earth asteroids, asteroids that pass near to Earth and are within our uh, orbital um, area. Those we could use for a number of resources, including water, uh, metals, and some other materials. The moon. Uh, the moon is probably where we're going to get that first water. Uh, we have found in the last 15 to 20 years that early estimates about the moon having water have largely borne out. And it seems like the moon has, relatively compared to what we thought, a lot of water. Uh, especially in a number of locations near the lunar poles. Both the southern and northern poles of the moon uh, have water, and this is water ice, so it's water in the form of a rock, uh, and often it's in what are called permanently shadowed regions, of uh, which are craters. And so we know that that water is there. We don't know how much of it's there, but that's probably what we're looking at first. Um, there's some other things on the moon that we could use, but most likely anything else that we use on the moon will be to support uh, lunar operations for either lunar research or for lunar water mining. And then finally for Mars, um, at least in the time frame that I was mentioning about the next 50 years, most of what we would be using for any sort of uh, space resource there, it could involve refueling, but it's largely gonna be focused on things that we use to enable us to have a mission there. So instead of having to take all the resources that you need with you from the earth, you'll bring technologies that allow you to extract water, extract other things, building materials, uh, potentially chemicals and other things that you can use for food and other types of resource production to enable the, you to do more things there than you could do on your own. Um, now, in terms of how do we know this, uh, that's really where the uh, intersection with the space resources field and space science and planetary science comes into play. Um, in the last 10, 20 years, we've seen large strides in our understanding of the solar system and our understanding of how planets and asteroids form. And that knowledge is continuing to increase. There's a number of groundbreaking missions that have happened and are in the works that are visiting asteroids for the first time, that are bringing materials back, potentially. Uh, one of the U.S. Uh, missions right now is sending a Mars rover that will collect samples that we will then hopefully uh, bring back to Earth in uh, the 2030s. And so we're already starting to uh, do space resource-like activities at a scientific level. 
and that's informing how we can uh, do any sort of space resources activities from a commercial or in support of a scientific mission later on. Um, one thing that we are at the uh, is critical for the stage the industry is at right now is prospecting. We have an idea that these resources are out there, but we don't know how much. We don't know necessarily where all of them are. And so one of the key things that we need to figure out is how do we establish enough ground truth about the resources that are there before we can start a commercial extraction mission. So we're really at a prospecting stage. That's really what we're moving towards right now. That's all so interesting and such a great way to start us off. Thank you for that foundation. So now that we have at least a cursory knowledge of the resources and the intentions we might have with those resources, can you help us understand some of the relevant technologies that might be at play here? So, for example, if we know that you know the moon has a certain amount of water that we want to try to process or an asteroid has a certain amount of precious metal, how might those materials be retrieved and either used uh, in space or brought back to Earth? So this is one of those big questions that we're trying to figure out right now. So at a very basic level, some of the technologies are the same as what we use on Worth. I mean, you effectively could have a shovel or have a drill that you use in space. The thing, though, is that the space environment is very different from normal operating environments on Earth. Uh, most of the locations are in vacuum. You are subject to substantial temperature swings, depending on whether you're in direct sunlight or not. Uh, in the case of the moon, uh, the moon, because it's tidally locked to the Earth, doesn't have a normal 24-hour uh, daylight cycle like the Earth does. And so if you use solar panels for most parts of the moon, you have 14 days of light and 14 days of dark. And so powering your facilities then becomes a big question. Uh, one of the things that is challenging when we actually look at the materials themselves, we don't necessarily have dirt or geology that is the same on asteroids or the moon as it is on Earth. So one big scientific challenge that we're dealing with right now is how do we create analog materials on Earth to allow us to test our technologies? If you have a space shovel, is it actually going to work uh, under the same gravity conditions that you have on the moon with the same type of uh, regolith that you have on the moon, which isn't soil. It's a completely different process to create the regolith. And so we're figuring that out right now. Some of them are similar technologies to what's on Earth. Some are radically different. Uh, one of the big ones when it comes to water and that there's probably going to be a lot of uh, work on and maybe the first uh, way we do things is using heat uh, to essentially bake out the water from a material. And mm -hmm. so uh, that's especially true when we're looking at water on the moon and it's in some of these uh, cold areas uh, in the craters. If we can redirect uh, heat towards that, either with solar energy or mirrors or some other technology, we could even put things on rovers that are sending microwaves into the ground. The water that is mixed up in that regolith uh, can then uh, change and it can come out as gas. And then we can use uh, things to capture that. There's another idea out there right now um, from a company called Transastra that would capture a small asteroid, maybe five meters uh, in diameter or so, and put it in a big bag and heat that up. And then the water would then come out. So, wow. yeah, so it's, it's a... Some weird technologies, some new technologies. Um, it's an open question about how economic each of those technologies is going to be and also how we do the technology development process. Because a lot of these things, uh, we are very early in the technology uh, development cycle, um, particularly when we get to that question I mentioned earlier about the prospecting phase versus the extraction phase. And so we have ideas on how to do a lot of these things. And if you look historically, the moon and asteroids have been talked about as areas that we could use resources on and get them from 
for many, many years. But now we're actually getting to the point where we have to start designing those systems and we're figuring out what that entails. And it's it's going to be difficult. We think it's likely that we'll be able to get the technologies there. We don't know how economic it's going to be until we actually see what space markets look like in 10 to 20 years. Great. And quick technical question. There was a term you used that I actually don't know. I think it was regolith. Um, you said it a couple of times. What is that term? Yeah, so regolith. Um, so if you look at the uh, material that is on uh, the moon, uh, Mars, asteroids, it is not quite dirt or soil. So soil on Earth has a large biological component because there is uh, organic materials in there. There are things that have broken down over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're talking about regolith, it is a layer of loose uh, dust, broken rocks, uh, common impact fragments, depending on where you are. And so it's really small bits that uh, is essentially the top. And so if you have ever seen like um, uh, a picture from the Apollo program and they're walking on that kind of uh, very dusty looking thing, that's what the regolith is. And the regolith characteristics vary a lot depending on where you are. And figuring out what resources are in that is in that regolith and also how deep that regolith goes is an important science question when you're trying to figure out what can you do with that material. Great. Thank you for that. So, Alex, when we're thinking about Earth, um, we have pretty clear, if sometimes contested, rules about which countries have the right to extract or develop resources from, let's say, a patch of land or, or seabed. Um, but what about the rules governing objects in space? What types of governance systems are currently in place? So that's a really good question, Daniel. This is one of the primary areas of uncertainty that space mining faces right now. So when you look at how space governance works, uh, there are five major international space treaties. Uh, The two most relevant for this question are the Outer Space Treaty and then the Moon Agreement. The Moon Agreement was only signed by a handful of countries, none of which are major spacefaring countries. And it has provisions in it that would treat uh, space resources for commercial purposes, similar to how we do things for the deep seabed. So if you ever heard of deep sea mining, there is a uh, entity, um, the Air National Seabed Authority, that oversees the permitting and determines how countries are able to exploit and use uh, the deep seabed. The Moon Agreement would envision a similar type of organization for space resources. But it's not in effect. The only uh, commonly accepted uh, treaty that governs space resource extraction is the Outer Space Treaty. Now, the Outer Space Treaty does not say anything explicitly about space resources, but it does have a very important provision. Uh, It's called the Non-Appropriation Provision, and that is due to the history of the Outer Space Treaty. So this treaty was originally negotiated in the 60s. It was signed in 1967. It's considered the Constitution of International Space Law, so it's a 50-year-old treaty. Hmm. Uh, At the time it was signed, it was only the Soviet Union and the United States as major space countries. And the point of the treaty actually was primarily uh, to be a non-proliferation and a security treaty. It wanted to try and prevent a nuclear weapons race uh, occurring in space. And so it has a number of provisions that are focused on that, but the non-appropriation clause was an aspect of that. It didn't want to create a space land rush. So it didn't want the U.S. to fly to the moon and plant a flag and say that we own the moon. Mm-hmm. And so under the non-appropriation clause, a country or a nation cannot claim any celestial body in outer space. So when it comes to space resources, it's a difficult question to figure out what that means legally. So clearly, the U.S. cannot go to the moon and 
go to a place that wants to mine and say that we own this land and we are going to mine it. But there is a, a emerging legal interpretation, which is based on state practice from uh, how the U.S. extracted lunar uh, rocks during the Apollo mission and the Soviet Union as well, uh, that says that even though you don't necessarily own part of the celestial body, once you take resources that are in place, you then are granted ownership of those resources. <laughs> and the, this has been an emerging uh, debate and discussion for a while. There are now several countries that have legal frameworks around that question specifically. The U.S. is one of them. In 2015, we passed a space law. And under that law, it guaranteed the ownership rights of a U.S. citizen that extracts abiotic resources in outer space. Abiotics means that if you find life, you don't own it. Mm -hmm. But if you go and you find water or you find metal and you extract it from the moon, once you've extracted it, you now, under U.S. law, own that material. Um, the degree to the which that is a okay claim under international law is hotly debated right now. There is a bunch of international work that's happening. And this is something that the U.S. government, um, both under the Obama administrations, but increasingly under the Trump administration, is considering to be a major uh, policy question. They're trying to get this resolved in a way that facilitates future space commerce. Wow, that is so interesting. And so, right, so if I wanted to put a bag around an asteroid and heat it up and <laughs> extract something, I could own the thing that I extracted, but I wouldn't own the asteroid itself. Is that about right? Yes, and that is one of the interesting cases because in theory, if you extract every single thing from that asteroid and then use it, that asteroid will no longer exist, right. but you own all the resources. So it's a question of where do you draw the line? That's a very specific case, um, but it creates a new type of legal system compared to uh, how we do a lot of things on Earth, and it's still highly uncertain about how much this will be recognized. Um, I think generally the way that most interpretations going right now is that if you have scientific resources, so if you extract something like the Apollo moon rocks or you send a mission to an asteroid to extract scientific samples, I think that's clearly accepted, particularly if it's done by governments. The big question is, what about commercial property rights? How does a commercial company get involved with this? Yeah. Well, so a related question that comes to mind, you know, before our interview, I was, I was reading parts of the Outer Space Treaty, and there's a provision in there that says, um, and I quote, the use of outer space shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries. And so when I read that, I, the question came to mind, you know, the reality is that there will be geopolitical and commercial interests that are at play. So how realistic is, you know, that aspiration when we think about uh, future space mining and, you know, um, distributing those benefits equitably across society? So this is a really critical question, and it's actually one of the reasons that I'm starting to do work in this area. Uh, if we're looking at outer space mining as a future part of the economic sphere as part of the geostrategic sphere, how do we manage that in a way that's equitable? How do we manage that in a way that's fair? And also, how do we make sure that that does not lead to future conflict back on Earth? Uh, it's going to be a challenge, but if you look at the text of the treaty and you look at the principles, it differs somewhat from the Moon Agreement and the UN Convention on Law of the Sea. Uh, which address a uh, different model for how benefits are supposed to be uh, given. Under that model, the benefits are financial. So when you get a permit to drill and extract resources from the deep seabed, the, you actually put aside some amount of your profit that is then distributed to other countries. And so there's financial profit sharing. 
under the Outer Space Treaty, you don't have a clear mechanism for that, and you don't necessarily need to have that. Benefits does not mean that you need to have a company that's profiting commercially uh, needs to share those profits in order for there to be benefits. To the degree that an improved space economy benefits all of humanity, uh, you can meet the uh, requirements of the Outer Space Treaty, both in principle and just also what we want to do. Um, particularly, if, if we can do what we want to do with space resources, we can greatly expand space science. We can make it much easier to do space activities. Uh, if you look at GPS, for example, GPS has done wonders for the global economy. Uh, people all around the world benefit from that for very simple things from getting directions on your phone to having products delivered to you on time. Uh, to having uh, services safe, to being able to fly in the airplane and know that you're going to be able to get to where you're going. And that is a U.S. project, uh, and it's U.S. funded, but everyone benefits from that service. And so when we look at space mining, if we do it in the right way, we can make sure that it benefits science for all of humanity. We make sure that the economic benefits uh, at least indirectly benefit people. And also one of the things that we can do politically is we can make sure to involve other countries. If other countries want to be involved with U.S. space activities, we should welcome that. We should really welcome uh, a group of nations working together in outer space for our joint interest and figure out ways to do technology sharing and other activities to make sure that this is something that benefits everyone. We don't want to have conflict in space. Let's figure out how to do that. That makes me think of, so there, you know, that, that phrase, a rising tide lifts all boats. Like, is there a space equivalent for that? Because that's kind of what this sounds like. Uh, I, I, I would argue so. I think if you look at a lot of things that are happening with uh, space activities, uh, there are major benefits from having our space technologies. There's often a question of, is it worth it for us to spend money on space when we have so many problems back on Earth? Uh, that's why we need to spend money on space. Space helps issues back on Earth. If we didn't have our weather satellite system, uh, the potential safety risks involved, uh, the economic damages, so many countries benefit from that. Um, the, the, right now, there's a big controversy about the mega satellite constellations um, that Elon Musk and others are proposing that would provide internet service around the world. Uh, if those actually go through and they're successful, we could change how much of humanity is connected to the internet in a way that is as revolutionary as getting cell phones to the developing world. So it's possible. I think that if you look at things uh, academically, um, there has not been as much work on that just because it's still in a very early phase. But we want to try and figure out how to make sure at this early stage in the industry to make those ethics and those values a key part of how we do things. Yeah. And, and I'll just point listeners also to the RFF uh, initiative called Valuables, which is a project that's all about trying to understand the economic benefits of observing Earth from outer space and how, you know, having uh, satellites uh, and technologies like those you're describing benefit uh, benefit all of us. Um, so one last policy question, which is, uh, you mentioned U.S. policy around space a couple minutes ago. Can you expand on that a little bit more and tell us about how U.S. policy is looking to incentivize exploration and developing governance structures in space? Yeah, certainly. So the U.S. is quickly emerging as one of the major, if not the only leader in actual space resources development. There's a number of other countries that are looking at this right now. Luxembourg and the United Arab Emirates in particular are looking at developing space law frameworks that would facilitate space resources development. But the U.S. uniquely has a set of characteristics that give it a big head start. Uh, first of all, it's got a really good innovative and business culture. We have a very strong aerospace industry, and that in particular is being led by a number of very innovative rocket companies that are reducing launch costs considerably. 
Uh, we also have a very strong university and uh, public-private partnership system uh, on uh, the side of NASA to help us develop a lot of these technologies. And so we have a lot of opportunity here. And I think policy and governance is following accordingly. So there was the 2015 law that I mentioned, which was really kind of groundbreaking in that it guaranteed the right to own resources. It didn't actually authorize people to go up and go get stuff in space yet. So we're working on that right now. Um, but there have been a number of actions from the Trump administration uh, to support uh, space resources in the last several years. They are looking at space as a big area of strategic competition, but also economic value. And so they're promoting the private and commercial space industry. Um, NASA has been really effective at using public-private partnerships to extend its capabilities and its capacities. And I was actually really excited about um, when we had this uh, podcast date set, because I just found out last week, uh, NASA released a new solicitation. And under that solicitation, NASA is asking uh, companies about whether they will provide a service. And that service is scooping some regolith from the moon and selling it to NASA. Um, so if that's done and that solicitation has a goal date of 2024, that would technically be the first commercial space money. That could happen within four years. Um, and that's part of the overall Artemis program that NASA is pursuing. NASA wants to use private companies because it makes things a lot cheaper for them. And it also reduces the technology development risk. If they have two or three companies competing for a service that they themselves would have to provide, they would have to use a lot of their limited science dollars to try and develop that capability in-house. Instead, they can put the risk onto private companies. Private companies can drive the cost down. And when it comes to space resources, if NASA is doing anything on the moon like it wants to with the Artemis uh, program, they're probably going to look at commercial companies to provide that for them. And so uh, NASA as a government anchor client is probably going to be the chief source of space resource purchases in the next 10 years. And meanwhile, the U.S. is starting to look internationally as well. So the Trump administration is currently developing a set of bilateral treaties called the Artemis Accords. Uh, the accords themselves are not overly uh, revolutionary. They largely enshrine existing principles from the Outer Space Treaty and other uh, relevant international law, but they provide a path forward to have uh, countries start engaging with us on a lunar program. And if we can be successful at that, if we can get our traditional space partners to buy into our space resource ideas, uh, then it's possible that we can uh, address a lot of that regulatory uncertainty and really start moving forward towards extracting these resources and using them to benefit people. Yeah, that's great. It's so interesting. It's going to be really fascinating to watch that develop over the coming years. And um, so we only have a couple minutes left, but um, you know, because this area is so new to me, and I imagine it's new to many of our listeners as well, I'm sure there are a million good questions that I simply haven't thought of <laughs> to ask you. So I want to just use our last couple of minutes to open it up and ask you to talk about uh, any other topic that we haven't touched on yet that you think is important for us to know about. Yeah, so thanks for that question. I, I was uh, excited when you mentioned you'd be asking this. So right now I'm working on uh, my PhD and I'm looking at a number of different areas, but one area that I'm really interested in is environmental protection. So when we talk about space, there's this idea that space resources are virtually unlimited, that because there's no one up there, we can't do any sort of environmental damage. And I personally just re reject that categorically. I think if you look at a lot of those arguments, they mirror arguments that we've seen in the past about the U.S. West, about uh, the oceans being unlimited and pristine areas that we can do whatever we want with. Every single time those arguments occur, usually what happens is that we then overexploit things and we cause damages that have all sorts of social and economic and other uh, negative uh, aspects years later. 
So when we look to outer space, uh, we really need to think about things from an environmental perspective uh, from the very beginning. The number one safety threat in low Earth orbit right now is not the fact that you're in space, so much of the fact that there's space debris that other humans put up there. There's a bunch right. of things that's up there that it could hit the International Space Station. It could uh, hit satellites. We have satellites consistently damaged. We've had satellites have collisions before. And so that's a space environmental problem that is clearly being accepted right now. But most policy conversations about space sustainability are limited to space debris. If we're talking about seriously going to the moon and mining the moon, we need to be thinking about environmental protection and sustainability from the beginning. Uh, the lunar environment is hostile in certain ways, and it does not have people, and we think it probably does not have life on it. Uh, that does not mean that the lunar environment is not fragile. And particularly uh, the regolith uh, in many locations on the moon, if you land on that regolith in the wrong way with a rocket, you will shoot that regolith into uh, the atmosphere of the moon, and because the gravity is so low, you could actually end up in a situation where enough of these landings could start creating a regular dust cloud around the moon, which would then impact all sorts of future lunar activities. Now, that's an extreme example. There's one way we can get around that and not do that, and that's creating lunar landing pads. There's a lot of engineering focus on that right now. But until we ingrain uh, our environmental values into our outer space activities, we have the risk of unforeseen impacts happening. Um, and that could limit what we do in the future. And particularly if you're a company, even though there might be some concern about environmental regulations stymieing you, it also helps protect that company. Um, one area that I've been looking at, and particularly lately, is the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. There's an open legal question about whether NEPA applies to outer space. Um, me and a co-author have a, a, um, some work that we've been doing in this area that we think uh, indicates it probably should. Um, but that has not been tested by the courts yet. And if NEPA does apply to outer space, that could provide the initial framework to start environmental law in outer space. Now, Clean Air Act, the rest of the environmental tools that we have in our toolbox might not be as applicable in outer space. But NEPA could work because NEPA is a precautionary regulation that requires you to look at your impacts before they happen. And that's exactly what we need at this stage for environmental protection in outer space. We need to know what things could happen before we make decisions, even if we decide that we're willing to risk it. Um, one related aspect of that that we have seen some legislative progress on is protecting lunar heritage sites. So there are places all over the moon and actually all over the solar system that we've sent past missions to that we think uh, as a country we might want to value. And so particularly the Apollo sites, we don't want to necessarily have tourists visiting those sites. The, the environment, the area could be very fragile. And so there is a possibility that we could have legislation that would protect those sites from any sort of future interference. Hmm. Wow. So many interesting issues to think about just on that one topic uh, yep. on environmental protection in space. Um, and so this has really, you know, piqued my interest so much in all these topics, and I, I'm sure it has for our listeners as well. So thank you again, Alex, for coming on and, and sharing your knowledge about um, space mining. It's going to be a really interesting area to watch in the future. So let me close us out with the question that we ask all of our guests, which is asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard uh, related to the environment or otherwise that you think is interesting and, and our listeners might enjoy. And I'll start with a very uh, brief recommendation for an article um, that just has my favorite headline that I've read in probably a few years. And the headline is, the Space Force has a horse for some reason. 
<laughs> and um, so the Space Force, a uh, newly established wing uh, of the U.S. military, um, has a Mustang named Ghost. Ghost is part of a equine patrol unit that patrols Vandenberg Air Force Base in South Carolina. Their program's actually been around since 1996, but this, I presume, is the first time that the Space Force has gotten a horse. Um, so just a fun little article, and uh, and I enjoyed uh, reading it and getting a little chuckle. Um, but how about you, Alex? What's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Um, so there's an article that just came out today that's really interesting, and it uh, reports on observations of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. Uh, and this is really exciting from uh, a planetary science perspective because it is a potential biomarker, meaning that that phosphine might be coming from biological material, from life on Venus. Uh, now, there's a number of reasons that that might not actually be the case, but uh, the researchers themselves weren't expecting to find this. And this is actually a technique that we're planning on using to look at exoplanets, so planets beyond our solar system to see if they have life. And so this could be a really interesting moment. Um, there's going to be a lot to talk about this this week. But in terms of our conversation, I think it's really interesting because uh, the reason that I really care about space resources, and I think it's interesting and important, is it will allow us to do so much more space science. If we actually think there could be life on Venus... Uh, it would be much easier to do a mission to Venus if we have a robust and vibrant space sector. And so um, I'm going to be digging into that article later on, and uh, I imagine there's going to be a lot of media on that topic uh, this week. Very cool. Well, so just so people know, we're recording this on September 14th, but we will have a link uh, to at least one article about this on the show notes so people can go check it out. Well, um, we'll end it there. And once again, Alex Gilbert from Colorado School of Mines, the Payne Institute for Public Policy. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.